Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to Voice Rising with Kara Johnstad. Enjoy weekly conversations with leading luminaries, pioneering visionaries, singers, poets, musicians, and sound healers as we explore the profound role our voice plays on the path to self-realization and global enlightenment. The internationally acclaimed singer, composer, author, healer, recording artist, voice expert, creator of Voice Your Essence, and founder of the School of Voice, Kara Johnstad uses her extraordinary spiritual gifts to empower others. Everything in this world vibrates. Everything has a frequency. A pioneer in the field of voice work and transformational songwriting. Her breakthrough methods are helping thousands of people worldwide fine-tune their body-mind-spirit system and unlock the energetic frequencies of limitless creativity, health, and abundance. Share your voice, ask your questions, join in the conversation. Receive life-changing, positive transformation and rise together to create a sound world. And here's your host, Kara Johnstad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Voice Rising. Today I have in studio Dr. Sharon Blackie, an award-winning writer and internationally recognized teacher whose work sits at the interface of psychology, mythology, and ecology. Her highly acclaimed books, courses, lectures, and workshops are focused on the development of the mythic imagination, on the reclaiming of indigenous Western spiritual traditions, and on the relevance of our native myths, fairy tales, and folk traditions to the personal, social, environmental problems we face today. So welcome, Sharon, to the show. I'm very happy to have you with me today. Thank you so much, Cara. I'm delighted to be here. So I was first introduced to your work while reading a stunning book called If Women Rose Rooted, beautifully written, honest, very moving, and really a passionate song to a different kind of femininity. And this show is all about voice, actually, the many, many layers of, of voice work, finding our own true voice. There's a quote from your book, and it goes like this, if I, if I may quote it. It says, if women remember that once upon a time we sang with the tongues of seals and flew with the wings of swans, we forged our own paths through the dark forest while creating a community of its many inhabitants, then we will rise up rooted like trees. And I know it's a big first question, but I thought we could just open this show with you sharing with us what your thoughts are about on, on finding our true voice and the role that voice plays in growing those deep roots that we need while we rise up. Well, I think for me, it is that whole book and most of my work, because most of my work, whether it's writing or the teaching that I do is with women, um, it is about trying to encourage women to reclaim our lost voices. And the voices are lost because our native mythologies here in the British Isles and Ireland show us very strong women in Ireland, mm -hmm. particularly the cosmology is very female-centered. And of course, Christianity in, in its um, later forms completely wiped out that female voice and created a very patriarchal environment where really only male voices were listened to. So, and yet the threads are still there in the folklore and in the stories that are passed down to us. So I was really interested in saying to women, look, the story that we have had um, told to us about our place in the world, which is inferior, um, which is to be quiet and listen to the men nicely and politely, actually is quite a late thing in our history. And if we mm -hmm. go back through the roots of those stories, 
into pre-Christian times, we find a time when women had very strong voices and where their voices were important. And in a world that is so challenged um, in all possible ways, environmentally, socially, and what have you, I think it's really important that women's voices are heard again. I agree. I very much agree. So how can we begin the journey of collecting those lost pieces so that we can come back to a place of belonging? I think a lot of it is is believing that it was once so, so that we're not kind of like having to create something from new that has never been Mm -hmm. before against all odds, that if we have this sense of lineage, if you like, this sense that way back in our ancestry, uh, women were valued, women were, were critically important parts of the community and also of the cosmology of, of our ancestors, then that gives us something to reclaim. That gives us a sense of belonging that otherwise we don't have. Because otherwise, I think in most Western spiritual traditions that have come later, women are disenfranchised and women are alienated from them. So a lot of it is just that understanding that, hey, you know, once upon a time, we really were important uh, and we can be those voices again. Um, I think that's really for me where it begins. Yeah, beautiful. Very beautiful. Um, You also have a part in your book um, that was really a delight to read because I often say in the beginning there was word and word is behind creation, but you took it a step further and you said, before there was word, there was the land and it was made and watched over by women. And when I read that, before there was the word, there was land. You know, obviously I had my own, you know, still have my own lost pieces with coming back to the land and realizing how disconnected I've I've been um, in my own growing up. Uh, I, it, it really was fascinating to think that that babbling brook might be the voice of the baby's babble happy talk. And uh, it was fascinating to try to think of, of course, that the winds that come through the trees are the messengers to our next song. So where do you think that the voice has its origins, if we can be really use our imagination and think, where, where does the voice, where's the voice actually born? Um, I guess it depends what you mean by voice in that context, but I would say for one thing for sure that that all of the ancient mythologies, um, that, that includes the ancient Greeks, you know, Sufi mm-hmm. mythologies and spiritualities, all of them have this concept of an imaginal world of the anima mundi, the soul of the world, being mm-hmm. um, imminent in the land. Um, and in the Irish, and so, you know, that is a very, very real thing. So in that sense, everything has a voice. A stone has a voice. A crow has a mm-hmm. voice. A tree has a voice. We as humans have voices. But what's particularly interesting um, in the Irish traditions and the other Celtic traditions to the extent that we know it and some of the other European traditions is that that voice of the land is very much women's voices in the old mythologies. So women spoke with the authority of the other world or the anima mundi or the imaginal Mm -hmm. world, whatever label you want to put on it, depending on which tradition you're working with. They were the voices of the other world. They were kind of like the moral authority. They were the voices of the land. Women in Irish mythology, the, the goddesses, if you like, the female deities, the female um, otherworldly beings, were literally the land itself in a way that the male deities were not. They were a little bit different. So to me, our ancient voices as women particularly spring from the land and in a, again, in a world that's environmentally challenged that needs all the help it can get, it, it yeah. seemed to me that women were uniquely placed to speak for the planet, to speak for the land, because that's what we've always done, it seems. And you do see that returning. You see a lot of um, very strong female voices coming up and and speaking for the land and and being uh, there for the environmental issues that need to be healed and attended to, right? Which is great. Yeah. You also, it's yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. No, and and you also there's another quote. We are carriers of the wisdom of our native places, the knowledge of the plants and animals. That was that's what you're talking about. And you just said that the voices literally they spring up from the land. And you talk in your book about women being voices of the wells and and connected to that power of the land. So how would you describe that phrase, voices of the wells, to our listeners? And what do you mean when you talk about? The phrase place speaking, you talk about the, you know, we have to have place speaking as if we are really rooted to certain places in the world. 
Yeah, um, two slightly, yeah, two long questions, but I'll try and make them oh, short. The so, voices, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Uh, the great questions. The Voices of the World comes from a very, very ancient story, which is probably one of the earliest stories that we know in the Grail cycle. And in a nutshell, because it's in the book, if people want to read the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, it's about um, it's about the land of of um, England and Wales and to some extent Ireland as well, which which was fed by holy wells by a network of holy wells, sacred wells, and of course we know that they're so important in our in our folklore and mythology. But out of these wells, which and, and it was always thought that the waters of wells came from the other world, you know, they sprung up from the mm-hmm. other world into this world and fertilized it and gave literally gave life to this world from the other world. But they were guarded and watched over by women, by otherworldly women who would come out of the wells and give, you know, food from a platter and um, water from their golden grails to any traveller who needed to come by until a king who should have known better did not honor his contract with the land and the other world and the well maidens and basically raped them uh one by one across the land and at that point the world the the land became a wasteland the women Mm. did not come anymore out of the wells the otherworldly waters retracted from the land um, and the land was no longer fed by the other world so that to me is a wonderful metaphor for all of the ways in which we lost the sense of the other world we lost our relationship with the sacred uh we lost the sense of the soul of the world embedded in this world it's a wonderful story um, for it but again the the old story says that the they lost the well maidens and the voices of the wells were lost so again it was the women that were the voices of the wells that were the voices of the other world that were bringing it into this world um mm-hmm. and that what I think we need to pick up again. We need to see ourselves again as the voices of the wells. And that whole idea of the power of place speaking, which is the quote that you mentioned, which is actually from a Canadian academic called Sean Kane. He used that word. Yeah, he said, myth is the power of place speaking because the stories that spring up from the land are the stories that that are literally you know come from the ground beneath our feet that feed us um that that connect us with the land that enchant us that that make us see the wonder in our places and that to me is all part and parcel of being the voices of the world if that makes sense no it makes total sense and for all our listeners out there, I can just highly, highly recommend picking up the book by Sharon, uh, "Women, If Women Rose Rooted. And uh, it's really it's really a very deep read. And, you know, I grew up in the lands of the, really the rolling hills of Wisconsin. So I'm an American who's now based in Europe. And it's interesting because although I was surrounded by all these fields and forests and, and um, you know, the beauty and cornfields and wheat fields, at the same time, every time we went into a diner, everything was frozen food and French fries and, and um, you know, was very little homemade uh, things. I mean, it, the, the older people, of course, they had the artwork and the cane chairs and, you know, you had a couple of art fairs uh, once a year. But there was a there was a lot missing this connection. I think this is why it, it touches me so much that, you know, I grew up on the land. I grew up on a big farm. And yet, still, I was disconnected from from many things. So uh, it's amazing, yeah, how that happens. Yeah. And it's exactly the same here. You know, there's all of that wonderful work that writer Rob McFarlane um, and artist Jackie Morris are doing with their book, The Lost Words, which is trying to uh-huh. bring bring back the words in nature that kids don't learn anymore. You know, children don't know what butterflies are in half yeah. of the world. Yeah. And it's just it's a shocking thing that we teach our kids and we ourselves spend so much time on our technology and just see the world as a backdrop for some human activity, whereas, in fact, we are utterly and meshed in it and missing so much wonder if we don't get out there and and talk to it and be with it in a very deep way. They say that that the word, you know, all these words are going extinct and uh, they're being replaced by words such as flog or blog or, you know, but but the willow is no longer to be found in in the dictionary, you know. Exactly. So today today I did learn the name is, um, is it Samwain? The Samhain. In the ge- Samhain. Oh, Samhain. Do the W. <laughs> Samhain. <laughs> so I learned today, everyone, the M and H is Samhain. Okay, Samhain. Today is Samhain. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, We are live today, and um, I understand, but correct me if I'm wrong, um, that this is a time for honoring ancestors. Yes, certainly. Is that how we see uh... this? Yeah, it's part of it. it. It's a time, basically, in the in the in the Irish and um, other Celtic traditions and the British traditions. Um, the the other world was seen as very much interlinked with this one, overlapping it. Um, and and sometimes of sometimes of the year and in certain situations, you could kind of pierce the veil and see through into the other world. It was it mm-hmm. was suggested that the veil between the two worlds was very thin, between these overlapping worlds was very thin. And Samhain is one of the times built in a the other time which is the first of may and what we think of as as, you know the may day holidays is the other time when the veil is thin between worlds and particularly Samhain though and so you can see through to the other world now in the in our traditions there were probably more than one other world so is the other world where the gods and goddesses might have lived and the archetypal Mm -hmm. beings and the monsters and the you know those kind of creatures but also there was the ancestral other world and so while the veil was thin the idea would be that you could you could perhaps receive visitations from your ancestors and that because they were kind of closer to us that this was definitely a time for honoring them and for honoring that connection um, all the way back um, through the ages that connection of our people that connection of people with the land um, because these were all land-based festivals so yeah Samhain is very much about that. And so do you think that we're carrying the storylines from our ancestors their own stories that they lived through and then then you know we come onto the earth do you think we're carrying those stories and voices of our ancestors within us I think we are, yes. Um, and sometimes they're good ones and sometimes they're very bad ones or wounded ones. And I think we have to work with all of that. Um, and mm. to me, that's part of the, the intertwining, the enmeshment, if you like, between humans and their places. Um, uh, you know, all, all very, very difficult to separate out back in the past, of course, humans from their places. But yes, those stories are, are things that we as individuals have to work with. And that's where my kind of psychology, I suppose, comes in. Um, but also, I think in order to to, to deepen our relationship and, and our connectedness to the land, we have to honor everything that, that went on there. Uh, but to me, there are different kinds of ancestors. You know, there's our genetic ancestry, our, our, um, our heritage from, from our family. But then there are the ancestors of the places that we live, um, mm. you know, who may or may not be our genetic um, ancestors. But, but if our, we have to also acknowledge who lives in the places where our feet are planted, uh, as, well as, uh, as well as our genetic uh, ancestors. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, Sharon, we're going to take a very, very small break, and uh, we'll be back with more thoughts on mythic imagination and ancestrals, ancestral voices. Cutting Edge of Conscious Radio, Ohm Times Radio.
Biome FM. Om Times Magazine is one of the leading online content providers of positivity, wellness, and personal empowerment. A philanthropic organization, their net proceeds are funneled to support worldwide charity initiatives via Humanity Healing International. Through their commitment to creating community and providing conscious content, they aspire to uplift humanity on a global scale. Connect at ohmtimes.com. Ohm Times, creating a more conscious lifestyle. Conflict comes in many forms and often triggers a fight-or-flight response. Some of us gravitate toward conflict, while many will stop at little to nothing to avoid it. Unfortunately, what we resist will persist, which often forces us to face our fear and deal with it head-on. Join me during my show, Conflict Rising, as I discuss the important role of conflict with leaders who have moved through it successfully. Tune in Thursdays at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Remember, it's always darkest before the dawn. With happy clients all over the world, Kara Johnstad knows that your voice is the missing link to more authenticity, abundance, creativity, and health. An internationally acclaimed voice expert, Kara's breakthrough methods have helped thousands of people successfully heal their voice wounds and extinguish the story of self-doubt and shyness forever. Join in group trainings, attend online sessions, schedule one-on-one time, and invite Kara to work with your organization and community. Get started today. Go to www.karajohnstad.com and receive a special guided meditation designed to fine-tune your inner voice and welcome you on the voice journey. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. (laughs) So take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back. I'm Cara Johnson, and with me in studio today is Sharon Blackie, award-winning author and international teacher. And we're talking about the mythic imagination and so much more. And we were just kind of we left off with our, the voices of our ancestors. And I was going to ask you, Sharon, um, are there certain rituals that we can practice, or yeah, a, a certain thing that we can do on, especially on days like today? to honor those voices of ancestors and maybe also to feel a deeper connection with what they might wish to give us? Yeah, I have to say that um, we don't, unfortunately, know very much about what our ancestral traditions would have been in this respect. Uh, They simply were not written down, you know, in a way that a lot Mm -hmm. of the stories were. So although we know a lot about um, some of the things that our ancestors believed, we don't know anything about their spiritual practices. So anything that I would ever suggest, you know, I have no sense that this is something that would have been done, say, 2,000 years ago. Uh, But to me, again, there there are two types of ancestors, as I was saying before the break there are genetic ancestors our family um, and I like um, at times like that I don't know very you know for many of us we don't necessarily know very much about our family lineage we can't go back many mm-hmm. generations um, but I you know I can I, I particularly have a sense of honoring uh, my female line and I can only go back to my great-grandmother nobody really knows anything beyond that but I like mm-hmm. at this time of year just to hold those names just to say those names aloud um, as I'm sitting and as I'm contemplating um, and to just say you know I am Sharon daughter of Doris daughter of Hannah daughter of Anne and just mm. to, to bring that sense of, of lineage and to say that aloud into the land um, and I am not in the land where most of my ancestors came from I'm about 25% Irish uh, but mm-hmm. some of them came from here but what I then do is I think back and I live in the west I live in Connemara and that has a very troubled history um, in Irish history you know with particularly with the British um, sending people from the more fertile places in Ireland to places like Connemara which are very boggy and very difficult to grow things in um, almost mm-hmm. as a you know as a penance to make way for better people in quotes and I think of that in the land I think of the people 
people who who came here because they were displaced, like so many people are being displaced today, um, who came here nevertheless and made lives and made it theirs and made stories. So I don't really personally do very much in the way of grand rituals, but it is just going outside and making a, a point. I always do this outside, making a point of honoring, of speaking something back to the land that says, you know, I, I see you, uh, I know what happened here, and I respect that, and, you know, I, I love this land, and, and here I am um, to, to add my story to the stories of the land. So for me, for me, ritual and ceremony is a very naturally arising thing, and um, it comes from the heart in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is fascinating sometimes when we walk through uh, I'm in the middle of Berlin, and for example, in the small forest, which is across from um, the the road where I live, Kafka lived on the other side. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I look up at these hundred-year-old trees that have seen two world wars, and and I know that I'm sure that Kafka walked by all these old trees <laughs> because they've been there for hundreds of years. And and you start allowing your imagination to think: How many conversations has this land heard, and how many lives has it supported? And and um, it's a beautiful thing for me to think about now, just, you know, going back, daughter of, daughter of, daughter of. I also can go back to my great, you know, my great-grandmother on all sides. So um, thank you for that. You talk about cultivating the mythic imagination. This is a lot of your work is is um, is exploring that. What what does that mean for you? Is it is it just tapping into those older stories? Or are we, through these stories, also awakening a vast amount of um, potential that we were maybe unaware of that is still slumbered within? Yeah, I would say to me, stories are part of um, cultivating the mythic imagination, but not the whole of it. So to me, um, that that goes back to these old traditions that I was talking about, which are prevalent in Western Europe um, and actually throughout Europe and, and further beyond, which is this idea of and a world soul um, in which archetypes and images and the gods or demons live and have ind- and stories live and have independent existence from us. You know, in, in modern traditions, we tend to think that we make all of this stuff up, that it emanates from the human mind. But back in the old days, these these things, the stories, the images, the gods, what have you, the angels had independent existence. And if we were very ha- look at lucky, they happened to us. And back in ancient times, people would have had ways of conversing with the imaginal world, of courting the world soul, of tapping into the world soul, um, being uh, recognizing the mythic patterns underlying their lives and so on. And we've forgotten that today. So to me, the, mythic, the, the idea of cultivating the mythic imagination is about finding ways to work with that imaginal world, to interact with archetypal energies and archetypal beings and literally weave ourselves back into this concept of the world soul. Beautiful. So many people also know when we're working with stories, the famous uh, hero's journey. But in your work, you also talk about the heroine's journey. You talk about the the feminine journey. And um, maybe you can share with us also when we're exploring all these stories. I, I personally, as a woman, find that so many of them, you know, the women are either the mother is dead or wounded. I, I always had a difficulty uh, as a woman. just I didn't see myself seen as a princess or the evil stepmother. So um, what is your take on how these stories have been created or rooted? Is it are there stories coming from different perspectives? Have we only been given one story or not one yeah, story? It, it, that was yeah. wrongly put. I'm sorry. One type of. Story, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of. I mean, it's a little bit complicated, but basically, the first thing we have to do is differentiate between myth and folk tales, of which fairy tales. Okay. Folk- Fairy tales would be a subset of folk tales. So myth is really explanatory. It's about how the world works, why it is as it is. If you look at myth in Europe, you find a lot of very strong women, as I say, particularly in the Irish tradition, the goddesses um, are prevalent. Um, they're associated with the land. They have a lot of power. That's kind of explanatory, higher level stories, if you like, kind of on a kind of semi-religious footing. Folk tales are a little bit different. They're literally of the people and they are much more fluid. So they 
take on um, the connotations of the day. You know, they take on the, the social and moral code. Um, they take on the lessons that you want to teach people, uh, and mm-hmm. they and they they vary and they change rather. They transform themselves down the centuries according to what's happening in the world. So progressively over time, as the patriarchy has taken hold and as women's voices have been more and more diminished, we see that happening in the folk tales as well. So that in a lot of folk traditions, yeah, the heroines are a little bit insipid and just waiting for a prince to come along and rescue them, but not all. So certainly in the Irish and Scottish traditions, which um, form part of my heritage, we have a lot of folk tales about really plucky heroines who... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Go and save the princes, you know. Um, and who are the ones who know how to get the help from the forest creatures, um, who know how to get the wisdom of the land and which plants are the ones that are healing and so on. So there's quite some interesting threads there. If we move beyond the more obvious fairy stories that people like Walt Disney have taken on board and um, yeah, Disneyfied for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Wow, fascinating. What What is your favorite? Do you have any favorites? You probably know them all. You've been studying so long. What is What is your favorite one where you felt very connected and empowered as a woman? Um, do you know, I think there were a few of them, but I think the, the, the most, my, my very favorite is actually the Wild Swans, um, which is a Hans Christian Andersen story, but you see it, you see similar version of it in lots of other traditions. And this is the mm-hmm. story where um, uh, a wicked stepmother, inevitably, isn't there always a wicked stepmother, changes 12, um, uh, yeah, 12 brothers, um, because she's jealous of her husband's kids, uh, changes 12 brothers into swans. And there is one daughter um, who is told, um, in, in a, to cut a very, another very long story short, that she can save her brothers and transform them back into men again if she takes spinning, uh, stinging nettles with her bare hands, plucks them with her bare hands, and if she spins um, that nettle into thread and knits um, shirts for them. And if she throws the shirts over the mm. brothers, she's told, then they'll go back to men. But she must do this. She must endure this pain of the stinging nettles while never speaking until the task is done. So literally her voice is taken away from her. So she has mm-hmm. to endure this pain. Uh, she, her voice is taken away from her. But ultimately, and she's almost burned at the stake by an evil bishop, um, as a witch because she can't speak and tell her story and she seems to be acting very suspiciously. And in the end, um, just as she's literally about to be burnt at the stake, her brothers as swans swoop down and save her just at the moment where she saves them by throwing the shirts over them. So I oh. thought that's such a beautiful story because it was all about, you know, I look at that night and, and a nettle is never a nettle anymore. You know, a nettle is a sign of something with which transformation can be crafted. And so there's that magic of it. There's that idea that, yes, you have to suffer sometimes. You have to endure. But transformation comes out of endurance. You know, that even when the worst seems to happen, when you're about to be burnt at stake, salvation can always come. So I love that story for so many reasons. Ah, beautiful. And we know that we're going to always get our voice back again. 
That's exactly. That's yeah. what we have that's to a, know. Yeah. That's exactly right? we it. We cannot be silenced. No, yeah. and so many of these stories about heroines are about finding ourselves again. So you've got the Selkie story, you know, which is a seal woman whose skin is stolen from her uh, by a fisherman and she finds her skin again and goes back to her element, which is the sea. That idea that we've, we lose something sometimes in our lives, we could find it back. There's the story of the handless maiden whose hands are cut off by her father because she refuses to marry the devil or him in some of the, the, the um, less pretty versions of the tale. And she literally mm. goes into the forest by herself and grows her own hands back. So these are stories of great transformation. You know, they help us reimagine ourselves. They help us to imagine that out of the worst things that seem to happen to us, something very beautiful can ultimately arise if we do the work, if we apprentice ourselves to the work. If we do the work. Um, we all know what good story is and we we know how important it is. You also talk in your work about a um restoring you say how how can we in a way restore i would say restoring so why is it so important to learn how to restory how we can recraft or reimagine is it is it a little bit like redoing the ending or or no it's not actually when i use that phrase what i am normally meaning is to uh, restory our relationships with places. So, for example, once mm. upon a time in this part of the world, every hill would have had a name, and that mm -hmm. name would have said something, for example, about what happened there, about the people's relationship with that place, about the, maybe mm. the being that lived in it, um, the gods and goddesses, perhaps, that occupied it, the spirits of the land. But a lot of that is being forgotten, so that place names exist and nobody has a clue anymore um, mm -hmm. why they were called that. Or just they don't call that rock anything anymore because they've forgotten what it was once called. So to me, part of building our relationship with our places, which I think is fundamental to anything that we ever do, is by going out into the land and creating our own stories, um, you know, naming our own places. This is the place where that happens, so I'll call that rock um, the story rock or the, you know, the rock of the golden plover or, or whatever. Uh, it's all about going into our places and telling stories about our relationship and our interactions with them. Oh, that is very beautiful. Very beautiful to remember, to, to honor, I guess, what you're saying is to really honor our path. And if a, if a mountain that we climbed was... was uh, yeah, was was there where we had our favorite picnic? Then we could call it Picnic Mountain, or whatever. Something like whatever, that. So yeah, that we it can... very, yeah, it sounds very trivial, but it's not because it binds you to that place, you know. And then that passes down into your family history, if you have, particularly if you have mm -hmm. kids or your mm -hmm. friends and what have you. And it means, but I think by naming things, there's a great tradition in the Irish, um, in the old Irish tradition, particularly of naming. By giving something a name, you do it, you give it, it's, it's respectful. Uh, you know, particularly the speaking of a name, you're honoring it, you're, you're kind of telling it what it is to you. And I think that's really very important in, in, in recognizing and um, literally mapping out our places by story. I've done that. You know, I've literally d done a map of my place and I've put my little place names on it and my little stories on it. And that's as, that's about as restoring as you can probably get. That's beautiful. I think you have a little niche there. I think you could uh, do little maps with uh, personal stories <laughs> and then we could find our way to the coffee shop by passing the the fence post where the where the little bird sat or whatever. Yeah. Um, Why not? You, you, not really. Uh, it's wonderful. I, I, I'm all for it. Um, it brings us then back also to um, something that you're very passionate about, the eco-heroine's journey. And when we start naming, of course, places and naming the things and we get that relationship to the, the land, then, of course, you know, we can take care of the earth much better. Um, what does it mean for you to, when you say the word eco-heroine, what, what, what does that phrase mean? Because I think it's really... Yeah, we're we're in a time where it's, uh, thank God, uh, re-emerging. Yeah, I think that began, that whole idea began with a, a discontent at Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Now, Campbell was mm -hmm. a wonderful man, but he was very much a man of his time. And America in those days was intensely heroic. You know, we're talking about the 1940s mm -hmm. when he was writing, when right. he was talking about this kind of thing. It was intensely individualistic, intensely heroic. And that was just the way that we saw the world. And it seems to me that we, we that hasn't got us into a very good place, that whole approach to the world. And also, it's not very womanly. You know, we don't want to go cutting the heads off dragons and swashbuckling here and 
there. I'd rather make the dragon part of my team than cut its head off to get past the threshold. So there's that whole mm-hmm. question of it never fitted women very well anyway. So then you start to think about what the heroine's journey might be. And I'm interested in saying, well, okay, what's the heroine's journey at this time? And we go back to that concept of the world in deep trouble. We go back to that concept of our ancient mythology telling us that women were the ones who represented the land, who could speak for the earth. And so why not call it the eco-heroine's journey, that that is what is required for this time for women. It's a journey back to a sense of place and belonging to this earth so that we may speak for it. You are so brilliant. You are just so brilliant. <laughs> I should I should come on the radio with you every afternoon and have you tell me that. You are you? so brilliant, actually. Yes, I mean I I'm I'm kind of speechless here. I think that's wonderful. I think we should just take a break there, and we're going to come back with the next part. Thank you so much. <laughs> Conscious lifestyle to your world. Ohm Times Radio. IOM FM. Ascending Hearts is no ordinary dating site, but a spiritual dating site with a purpose to link you with your soulmate. We engineer the serendipity so you can trust that you will attune with someone that has the same matching vibration as you. Ascending Hearts, the conscious dating site for the spiritually aware. Try Ascending Hearts for free. AscendingHearts.com I'm Kathy Williams, host of Sexy Mom Abundant Life radio show on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. On the show, we explore living abundantly in every area of your life. Ways to let go of limiting patterns and beliefs and to step into the flow of creativity and possibility knowing you are supported by the universe. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. This is Cara Johnstead. I am back with brilliant Sharon Blackie, author and educator. And uh, I just have to ask this. I guess this is, where was the turning point for you, Sharon? Were you always so deeply connected to that voice which is um yeah which is wise which is witty which is funny which is very clear and on point or was there a turning point where you decided to let go of any doubt and just dedicate yourself full on to your path as an artist and as an author Gosh, I'd love to say that um, I've always been this way and I have a very straight path, but that would also be very tedious, wouldn't it? Because I don't think most people's lives are like that. No, um, I had a I had a tricky childhood um, where I didn't feel very safe as a result of which I spent probably the first three and a bit decades of my life uh, looking for safety. Um, I, I always knew that I shouldn't be doing what I was doing in that very gut instinctual way that we sometimes understand these things. I was a, in corporate life for a lot of that time and I had a whole series of like mini midlife crises around my 30s. I ended up living for six years for reasons I won't bore you with um, in um, America and I had always had a fear of flying and the last point, the last when I was in my late 30s and I'd literally had about two midlife crises at that point, I really had a sense that if I didn't step out of this sense of this need to be safe in my life, um, I'd never 
I'd never go anywhere. You know, I'd never break the pattern. Mm -hmm. I'd never do what I was here to do. I'd never display that unique soul gift that I think every one of us had. And I thought, if it to stop feeling safe, I've literally got to go and look death in the face. I've got to go and look death in the face and be prepared to die. And so I started to learn to fly in a little tin can plane um, from Kentucky to New Mexico. Um, every time thinking when I got in that plane, I was probably going to crash and die, but doing it anyway. Um, and that uh, that time period, uh, particularly when I was flying over the earth, looking down on it, having had a very disconnected first three decades of my life, I was not physically very comfortable in my body. I don't know why it wasn't a bad body, but I never really inhabited it. And that whole process was utterly transformative in a way that I still find it quite difficult to put words on. But I do think it is that sense of, okay, I don't think we're here, you see, to be safe. I don't think we're here to retire in a nice big house with lots of money and play golf. I don't think that's our purpose. I think our purpose is to risk everything for, for the sole gift that we have to give to this world at this time and that we chose to be here and to display something. And we have to risk everything to display that. And although I could never have said that at the time, Retrospect is a wonderful thing, and I think that's what I was doing. But even then, it was a very slow process of picking up the threads of what I might have been um, and just seeing where, but allowing those, allowing the past to happen. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply and allowing myself to be led. And it's just been a very beautiful kind of unfolding and weaving process, difficult sometimes over the past couple of decades where, you know, I really feel that what I'm doing now um, is, it really is my calling. That's that's what I was here mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one senses that. But of course, one I, I have read in, in your books the whole journey, like a beautiful river. There's a beautiful quote by John O'Donohue. I hope I don't say this quote wrong, but something about may may I, may my life be like a river. May I always be sur surprised by its unwinding or unfolding. Yeah. You know this idea that we're traveling, and and I think uh, you talk about that a lot. I know that also as a as a woman, as an artist, this allowing ourselves not to be linear and to zigzag and to you know be pulled in different directions and to allow ourselves that you know, that it's, that it's not just a straight line, our career path, you know, that we're yeah. allowed to, yeah, to be pulled. Um, you also talk about conscious femininity and bringing the wisdom of nature back into consciousness. Um, talk about that, conscious femininity. Well, actually, um, that's not my phrase. That's a phrase um, from that, the very wonderful Jungian um, Marion Woodman. And she ah. talks about... Um, yeah, she talks about conscious femininity, and she said that that was a process of women realigning themselves with nature. Um, so, you know, we're right on track in that. I think that's exactly what it is. And, of course, Marion Woodman was, was a great proponent of actually getting back in your body again, um, mm -hmm. you know, of, of embodied femininity of actually of actually not not being all the time in our head analytical intellectualizing looking at computer screens even in books but just inhabiting our bodies and for me that was something I had to learn in midlife and so I think that that I think everything um, it's the problem with the, the history of imagination and the history of the mythic in the Western tradition is it has got progressively um, disembodied you know it's become intellectualized it's become very abstract mm. but really where you feel it 
um, where you genuinely reconnect is is in that place between your body and the body of the natural world around you. You know, to me, it's a very, very visceral thing. It's a physical exchange. It begins there. It begins when I touch a stone. Then I, you know, then my mythic imagination connects in and I see, I can kind of almost see into the heart of the stone and there's something then between me and the stone and there's a story and an image that arises. So I, I'm very passionate about about getting out of our heads um, and into the land and touching things and allowing ourselves to make relationships with, with actual, you know, real concrete things. Um, so what so would you kind of suggest? What, yeah, what, what do you suggest for those poor millions of people that might be uh, far from a forest and they might be living in those high rises or those apartment buildings? How can they start to embody um, more and more... Yeah, connect more and more with nature and, and get out of their heads. Oh, did you, did you, uh, <laughs> that question. Okay, Sharon might be, Sharon's going to reconnect. She will reconnect. She dropped off. Well, I, I know there's a beautiful passage in uh, Sharon's book where she actually talks about a, a friend of hers who's in London who actually does live that urban lifestyle, and she um, you know, she she even makes friends with the spiders in her bathroom, and she does the thing that many people do, many city dwellers do, which is Sharon. I'm telling a story from your book, which is to um, yeah, to maybe even plant a balcony or find places in the city where you can um, plant things. I was saying, Sharon, what do what do all those millions of people do mm. to connect with the rocks, and what what can they do if they're in the cities of this world? We have so many. Um, huge cities, and uh, yeah. what can we what can we do if we're not able to just walk on the grass or touch a tree? I, I yeah. do remember that story from your book, a friend of yours in London, I believe, who who kind of made friends even with the spider in her bathroom. That's what I remember. It might have might be wrong, but I was no. There's all kinds of yeah. things like that. I mean, that you know, there is there is life everywhere. There are foxes in London. Um, there are blackbirds and crows, and there are flowers peeping up through the pavement and one of the things mm. I quote in my in my book The Enchanted Life com, comes from um, this guy Sean Kane that I was telling that I was mentioning before a Canadian professor who wrote a wonderful book called The Wisdom of the Myth Tellers and he quotes an Australian architect walking around downtown Sydney with an Aboriginal elder whose name I can't remember either of their names but the Aboriginal elder is saying to this guy Robert somebody look you know white people see this city um, with its concrete building buildings as dead but to an aboriginal person even concrete even a concrete building has a dream of becoming and that mm. had a real impact on me and i thought well who are we to say that concrete doesn't have soul you know that only a tree has yeah. soul um and and then i thought well gosh if if we could actually in cities see our places in that way um, wouldn't that be a city worth living in? You know, if we could actually see ourselves as in relationship with those buildings and with the streets that we look down on and to see beyond the concrete and through the concrete and with the concrete. I think we have to learn to adapt to whatever is around us because if we do not connect with our places, you know, because we don't find them satisfactory or because we wish we were somewhere else, then we're really doing them a disservice. I think our places, they need us and... And we need to respect them because they give us everything. They give us our lives. So we have yeah, to find very, a way. Very, yeah, very true. I just had images in, in my in my head when you're talking about, you know, all the pigeons in the square when you're in Florence, they come flying over. Or, um, yeah, I just I just saw sitting in a in a uh, actually it was in I was in the hospital last week and I saw a green woodpecker and I and he came up to the window. I mean, a green woodpecker. I haven't seen one for ever wow. and, day. Yeah. and uh and it was seemed like a, a message it did uh, there there it was a green woodpecker so we're able to walk down the street and sing to trees if we're not living on the lands we're able to um have conversations with uh, birds sharon you do a lot of you know i know you need a lot of time for writing but you also do a lot of teaching you do a lot of sharing of all these stories and the path you have a lot of courses that you do. Where can people deepen their conversation um, with you and and start exploring some of these ideas? 
Well, if they go to my website, which is SharonBlackie.net, they'll find a number of ways of doing that. But the main way, actually, which is something new that I'm working on now, which begins at the beginning of January next year, is kind of like a monthly membership program, which is called This mm -hmm. Mythic Life. And that enables people to dip in and dip out of the work rather than commit to a course, you know, so you can join in on a monthly basis. And there's a forum where people around the world who are interested in these issues can get together and hook up with each other. And every month we'll delve quite deeply into a particular aspect of the mythic imagination, whether it be place or a particular fairy story or a particular archetype like the wise old woman or whatever. And so that to me is a way of trying to, to spread myself kind of as thin as I can. I love to teach in person, but as you can imagine, it, you know, as you say, I'm a writer and I have books to write. So this is this to me is a really interesting way of trying to build online community with webinars and forums and what have you. Uh, and help people form community around this work. Beautiful. And, you, and I believe you also, do you do some workshops in the summer? I remember last summer looking into uh, that, that you were teaching some things in person in the summer. Yeah, I've uh, the past couple of years I've uh, I've been to America um a couple of times a year to do workshops at places like the Rowe Center in Western Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I was at Esalen earlier this year, Hollyhock in Western Canada next spring. So I try to do a little in America because it seems that interestingly and perhaps it's because so many people over there have Irish connections. I find that a lot of the people who are looking into my work are Americans and I think it is because people over there who feel a sense of displacement from the land and, and you know and, and uh, that they're not entitled to belong because of the history of their relationship and their ancestors relationship with that place are often looking for ways to to from their ancestry to inform their connections over there yeah that can be the one thing and the other thing i i do think that as as an as an american myself we we struggle a little bit with um the consumerism and the you know, things were missing. We used to knit mittens, for example, and now you just, you know, buy five pair and you lose yeah. one, you buy another two for one or whatever. And I think that there's a big a longing, a, a huge longing to reconnect um, with not only the land, but also the idea of being creative and yeah. and creating things, you know, not just buying the TV dinner, but really chopping up an onion, right? I mean, exactly. and making yeah. a soup. I think that's it's a very... It's so therapeutic, yeah. It's, it's, it's a wonderful it's, it's wonderful, it. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we're coming to the end of the show. You are, yeah, you are a writer. You use the voice also as a as a teacher. Um, I'm, I did see a picture somewhere with a drum. Do you also sing? Uh, um, I do sing a little bit, but my voice isn't quite what it was. Um, I'm not. I'm not like you. I'm afraid I don't have that resonance. The beautiful. I can resonance guide you if you want. It'd be an honor. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, What is the one thing that you would like our listeners to know about finding, listening to your calling and finding your true voice and you know, if if there's one little golden nugget of wisdom from Sharon Blackie, what role does the voice play in our lives, and and why is it so important for us to go on the search of of really feeling what that voice is for us ourselves? Because all of our ancient philosophies and mythologies tell us that each soul chose to come into this world at this time in order to display a particular gift that nobody else can offer the world, that each of us is a unique reflection of the soul of the world, of the anima mundi, and without us, something is lacking. And so I think the idea that we sleepwalk through life, as our culture tells us, is a very sad one. So to me, working with myth, working with story, working with our dreams, working in every way that we can to penetrate into that imaginal world um, is, is a way of finding out which images call to us, which images resonate with us, what they can tell us about what that gift might be, that unique thing that each of us brings. And otherwise, our lives are kind of wasted in a sense, I think, if, you know, if we don't try and find that thing that is unique and beautiful um, about us and the whole reason that we're here. Yeah, I agree with you. I very much agree with you. So I want to thank you so much for being with me today on the show. I want to also encourage everyone who's listening 
Um, if Women Rose Rooted, I think it's a book for everybody, not only women. I think it um, it's really a book that changed my life. And then Sharon, tell me the other titles. I know I read the the other one after that, the enchanting. The en- the enchanted life is kind of a more a bit yeah. a bit of a practical guide to you know to right. how to bring more wonder and enchantment into your life. And then my most recent book, actually, I've gone back to fiction, and I have a collection of kind of like fairy tale retellings about shape shifting women, uh, which is called mm. Foxfire, Wolfskin, and other stories of shape shifting women. And that's been fun. I enjoyed that. <laughs> and that's now released. That is released. So we it can is. we can pick that up and, and uh, either we're lighting a candle if we're in the urban setting or we're by a fireplace or, or someplace and, and reading stories. Absolutely. And you'll find Baba Yaga there and the old Kalyak and all kinds of serious characters that uh, are great for this season because I wrote it about this season last year. So, yeah. fabulous fabulous so Sharon thank you so much for being with me here at Voice Rising I hope to have you back on the show um, at any time yeah thank you Cara I'd be delighted it's been a real pleasure okay bye bye As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 